0: Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Five by your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews. This week, Catherine checks out Lorenzo Il Magnifico after I take a more compact approach to card play and look at Rocky Road a la mode. Mike gets industrious with Glass Road while Mason talks about connecting rails in Metro. And finally, Lindsay's investigating some spooky occurrences in Arkham Noir. It's a great mix of games and we hope you enjoy, especially as we're looking to get your feedback. We figured a giveaway might help make helping us out a more enticing prospect. So please take a few minutes and head over to survey.5bygames.com. Answer our questions and be entered to win a $100 gift card to your online game store of choice. But please, just one entry per person. Again, the link is survey.5bygames.com. And here's Mason kicking things off with a discussion of a game that you might just want to use some of those precious winnings on.
1: Hi, I'm Mason Weaver, let's talk about Metro. Dirk Hinn is a pretty famous guy. He won the Spiel des Jahres in 2003 for Alhambra, and is well regarded for Shogun, Wallenstein, and the Rose King. He's also designed a bunch of other lesser known and lesser regarded Queen game titles that you've probably never heard of, but that are probably pretty okay if you could pick them up for cheap. Metro is originally from 1997. Dirk and his wife Barbara self-published it as Iron Horse, and Queen picked it up in 2000. I'll get deeper into the rest of this wacky provenance later because it is peak Queen Games tomfoolery. But Metro is a path-building tile game, and one of my favorites. You might be familiar with the very popular Suro, that's T-S-U-R-O, which is a very simplified version of the same mechanic. Streetcar, Indigo, Taiyu, Romana, and a few others are also in this genre. You pick up a tile and lay it on the board connecting paths together. In Metro, you want to take your little streetcars from the edge of the board on the longest route possible back to a station somewhere else on the edge. You get a point for each tile your car passes through on its way to one of the stations around the board. Each car can only go to one station, and each station can only hold one car. Once the paths are set, you can't change them. Oh, and I forgot to mention that you're building the Paris streetcar system, but that's totally irrelevant, so don't worry about it. This is a completely abstract game with little or no thematic connection. In Metro, every tile connects to every other tile, so there are no illegal placements other than connecting a streetcar back to its own station. All the tiles have two connections per side, and so it's the interior lines that create the different routes. The big goal in Metro is to connect your car with one of the four central Paris stations in the center of the board, because these are worth two points for every tile your car passes through. There are only eight central stations and 32 streetcars, so in higher player count games, you may not even get to one of them. The more players there are, the fewer cars you have, but the two-player game of Metro is just right for me. I've played this at six, and it is essentially total chaos. With each player having so few cars, there's a pretty high likelihood of other people's tiles accidentally ending some of your routes early and forcing you to just sit out and watch. Don't try to play this strategically at 5 or 6. It's basically just a party game at those higher player counts. I've been playing a simple solo variant that I thoroughly enjoy that turns Metro from a tight and, depending on your opponent, pretty mean two-player game into a difficult abstract puzzle. You basically just set it up for two players, and instead of taking turns as each player, you're pulling a tile and placing it every turn. Your goal in the solo game is to keep the two colors as close together as possible and score, so you can't play against yourself by ignoring the Blue Street cars and getting big bonuses on the yellow cars. After all the tiles are placed and the streetcars are scored, you take the lower of the two scores and subtract the difference between them. So ending the solo game 15 points ahead on one color is actually going to cost you 15 points. I think it could also work as a fun co-op variant as well. Feel free to DM me if you want a written explanation, and I'll try to get the solo rules file up on BoardGameGeek soon. Now, you know me, so I can't talk about Metro without getting into version and box size drama, but I'll try to keep it somewhat brief. The original 2000-2005 editions of Metro came in the old, reasonable, though still weirdly deep Queen boxes. Those are about 10x7x4, by by or if you live anywhere other than America, 25x18x10cm. By by Metro was out of print for a while, and then Queen re-released it as Cable Car in 2009, and, I kid you not, dear listeners, doubled the box size. Cable Car does include an interesting stock variant that I've never played, but there's a good printable file on BGG that's backward compatible with Metro. I would strongly advise you not to buy Cable Car. The updated art is headache-inducing at best. And I'm not being figurative here. The first time I played Cable Car, I ended up with a throbbing headache because the visual contrast on the tiles is almost non-existent. No offense, of course, to Michael Menzel, whose art I love, but if your vision is poor, it makes Cable Car almost unplayable. So then even more ridiculously, Cable Car went out of print, and then Queen did a Kickstarter for a reprint of the old Metro in 2014, and then Queen made a big splash of re-releasing Cable Car in 2016. But in under six months, Cable Car was $15 on Amazon. So then last year, Queen re-re-released Metro, in a bigger box, ticket-to-ride size, with new cover art, with worse components for $40. So the whole thing is just a total mess. The newest version no longer has wooden trains, which doesn't negatively affect the gameplay at all, but maybe isn't the best value. It does come with four of their silly queenie mini expansions that you don't need and only exist to make you feel ashamed for not owning everything for a game. For me, a copy of the original version is preferable. Reasonable box size, readable graphic design, and good components. It can be had used for roughly the same price as a new copy. If you're interested and need help sourcing a used copy, please let me know and I'd be happy to help you navigate buying used games on the internet. There's also now a mobile app version of Metro available, and my review of it is, well, it was only $2.99. It's... Fine? It works. Um, I would suggest not attempting to play more than two-player in the app as it's not very interesting, but it's still a decent time passer. The graphic design of the game makes it difficult to see route connections on anything smaller than a very large tablet, and though it previews colored routes when you place a tile, it takes multiple taps to change positions, which absolutely enrages me. I'm not sorry I bought it, but it's about as good as their digital versions of Alhambra and King Builder, which is just okay. Definitely wait for it to go on sale on the app store. So who should buy Metro? People who love tile placement, people who like path building, people who want the flexibility of a system that adapts to multiple play styles and player counts, people who like Surro but are looking for something deeper, and people whose power fantasies center on planning Parisian streetcar systems. I give Metro 14 out of 16 sturdy streetcars sleeping solitary in silent stations. I'm Mason Weaver and you can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost.
2: Glass Road, the 2013 Uwe Rosenberg big box title from Z-Man and later Mayfair Games was the first Rosenberg that I liked. That may in part be to the cool resource wheel mechanism, the card play, or the fact that you are neither farming in misery nor have to feed your family. But whatever it is, I fell for this game pretty hard and fast, despite the fact that I'm terrible at this game. In Glass Road, we are glassmakers in the Bavarian Forest. Each player starts off with a fairly pristine forest play grid with ponds, sandpits, and groves, and cards representing the 15 people you could possibly hire each turn. These 15 specialists with their two abilities each are how you obtain goods. At the start of each of the four building phases, each player chooses five specialists to play. Then for each of the three rounds, everyone takes their chosen card for that round and places it face down in front of them. Then in turn order, you flip your card face-up and take one or two of the actions. If someone else has the card you chose still in their hand, they must play that card now, and both of you can only take one of the two actions on the card. This can really help the other person with the card, or it can really mess up their plans if it forces them to play a card earlier than expected. No matter what, this always hurts the person who is wanting to play the card that round. You collect the goods on your resource wheel, moving what you've collected as many spaces as necessary. The wheel is set up like a clock with a minute and hour hand restricting the resources. You can only go so far with any one resource before it gets stopped by the hand because you haven't moved up your lowest resource. But once you do move your lowest resource, the hand automatically rotates to make your secondary resources which are either glass or brick. It is useful to make these valuable resources, but they also decrease your amount of basic resources. So you have to be careful to make sure you aren't collecting more resources than you can use and also that you aren't making bricks and glass when you need those resources to build buildings. There are three types of buildings you can build in Glass Road. Processing Buildings, Immediate One-Time Effect Buildings, and Endgame Scoring Buildings. Processing Buildings you can use ongoing to convert one good into another. Immediate Effect Buildings are like gifts. You pay for and build them and then get that one-time goods increase. Endgame Scoring Buildings are the only way to get points in the game. You start with two on your board that give you points for any glass or brick you have at the end of the game but it's not a very good return on investment. Usually I look at the scoring buildings first, and then plan back through the processing and immediate buildings to see what can best help me get to the scoring buildings I want. Except, regardless of player count, the building board only has four buildings of each type available for each building round. This means that over the course of the three rounds of card play within the building round, there is tight competition for available buildings, especially in the four-player game. So, Class Road is a 1 to 4 player game, and little is done to actually scale the game from 2 to 4 players. 2 players is a minor change to the card play, in that in a 2 player game you are much less likely to get all 5 cards played, but in a 4 player game it's much more likely that the buildings you're looking at will be taken by another player. And in a 3 player game, the starting player gets distributed unevenly. Not that it matters much, but it still strikes me as a little off. I still feel like the game plays fine at all player counts, it's just something to be aware of. Glass Road also contains a solo option. This is a build as much as you can in the building periods given to you to achieve as many points as possible type game. You get seven building rounds, but the trick is that you can't use the same cards in back to back building periods, and you can only use one of the actions on each card. There's a Harlequin promo specialist card that is for solo play that allows you to wipe the player board or to roll to get resources. It's pretty fun. Travis from Low Player Account sent me a copy. Anyway, if you do play solo, feel good knowing that you'll likely easily beat my score of 19. So, why am I so bad at this game? For two main reasons, I think. First of all, this is a relatively short game. I'm usually planning for multiple endgame scoring buildings with the lever plans to get there, and this game cuts me off well before I finish any of those plans. Secondarily, there's a whole meta to this game about who is likely to play what card, so that maybe you can maximize how many you can play each building round. And I'm terrible at guessing what other players are going to do. I also, as usual, have a few niggles with Class Road. First, while the art by Dennis Lohausen is fantastic and has many fun details like giants, dragon shadows, sharks, and other fun bits hidden in the tiles, unfortunately, as is common for these games, everyone is a white male. Although I thought maybe the water carrier could be a woman, but my wife informed me that he is in fact a man. I also feel like for my taste there are too many building tiles. i just feel better if I could ever get a consistent game going but I can't because the number of building tiles makes it so you rarely see the same combinations. So why do I keep Glass Road? Well, for a brief time, I didn't. I thought Broom Surface would give me a similar feel with the car play, and I had been beta testing the app and had eye hopes for it. But in the end, the app was sort of middling in my opinion. Maybe it's gotten better, but at the time it was just... decent. And I missed the interplay of the cards and the resource wheel and the math of the building tiles for conversions and points. So I rebought it and have been happy to keep playing it ever since. And that's Glass Road. If you have any questions about it or have any history on the historical Glass Road in Bavaria that you wish to share, you can reach me on Twitter at Mike Risley.
0: Hello, five by listeners. It's Ruth here, enjoying the warmer weather in North Carolina with some delicious treats. Rocky Road a la Mode from designer Joshua J. Mills was published in 2017 by Green Couch Games and puts two to four players at the helm of colorful ice cream trucks. Game lasts roughly 20 to 30 minutes, in which time players have to see who can best satisfy customers on a hot summer's day in order to earn their loyalty. The meat of this game is housed in its main deck of multi-use cards. These cards can be used as the customers you'll attract to your truck, or be used as treats to fulfill the orders that those customers bring. Once both customers on a card have been successfully served, the card is then rotated under the player's truck guard and becomes lasting rewards. These can either be the all-important loyalty points, or they can represent particular types of treat that are now considered to be permanently stocked in the truck, letting players use less cards to fulfill orders, and let them build up an efficient engine to win the game. They can also be used to claim valuable bonus cards by collecting sets of permanent traits and earn even more of those valuable loyalty points. Various actions in this game are paid for with time, and so Rocky Road actually uses a very similar time track to Thebes, the game I talked about in episode 2 of the 5 by. This means that the player furthest behind on the road takes the next turn or turns until they eventually pass another truck. Player trucks will move around the circular neighborhood in this manner until a player has earned 9 loyalty points by serving customers, which signals the end of the game. But just because someone triggers the end doesn't mean they're going to win, as every other player gets to keep taking turns moving that little truck meeple until they finally pass the lead truck, which gives them all a chance to steal the victory. Earlier I mentioned bonuses for collecting sets, and these are pretty important. The cards for the bonuses represent locations where your truck can set up shop, but only if you're able to satisfy the local taste. Each card asks players to have either three of the same type of treat, or a set of all three different types. The first player to have the correct treats permanently stocked in their truck will get either three or four points, depending on the card being claimed. And there is a second place card for each location, but it is worth less. Three or four points for a bonus is quite a big deal when the endgame threshold is just nine loyalty points. So grabbing the right card can easily propel a player into the lead, and makes it very dangerous to ignore these bonuses. During Rocky Road, players can also earn treat tokens. They get them from hitting potholes on the neighborhood road, and they'll use these tokens instead of cards to fulfill orders. But unlike the permanent treats, these tokens don't count towards bonus sets. In the standard game, the tokens are wild, making them incredibly powerful. But there's two included variants in the rules that change up how the tokens restock, and actually can change whether they're wild or whether some represent specific traits. It's not a huge shift in gameplay by any means, but it does let you change things up just a bit and keep things a little more unexpected. One of the things I love most about Rocky Road is the fact that on the table, this game is a riot of bold color, which is all due to the charming art from Adam McIver. It's full of small, quirky details, including a treehouse reminiscent of another Green Couch title, and representations of the designer, the artist, and publisher and amongst the customers, which all just adds more life to the setting and theme. McIver was actually also responsible for the graphic design in the game, and he's done a tremendous job making sure that all the fun, pretty art doesn't hurt functionality. The cards are well laid out, and all the different types of treats are clearly differentiated by shape as well as color, making the game easy to follow and avoiding issues with color blindness or low light. The four truck meeples that move around the map, they are all the same shape, but when run through an app designed to look for accessibility issues, the colors appear to be fairly distinguishable. Again, making sure this is a game that can be played by more people. Production-wise, this is a lovely little game, and even the board can be replaced by four included map cards in order to let you fit it into a smaller deck box for portability. However, honestly, the regular box is pretty small and easy to carry around, and it fits everything nice and snugly without wasting space. So even when I take the game out, I tend to just use the board. And this is a game that I really only play when out and about. Its relatively small footprint and quick playtime make it a great bar or restaurant game. And in fact, the last time I played was while waiting on trivia night to get started at my local pub. Because of this, I've also primarily been playing the game as a two-player experience. But I have heard many people tout three-player as a sweet spot, so I would like to get more plays with more people. I can say the game doesn't suffer at too, and when you're playing against just a single opponent, those last few turns can get pretty cutthroat. What you get with Rocky Road is a charming little game with a really fun theme that plays quickly without sacrificing interesting decisions for the sake of time. The phenomenal art means that everything is full of color and life while keeping the multi-use cards easy to understand for new players. There's a lot of fun in a tiny little package, so I'm gonna be keeping around for some time, and not just because the designer is a local friend. So please, check out Rocky Road a la mode if you're in the mood for ice cream. And if you do try it, please. Let me know what you think. You can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at
3: roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Last year, I had the pleasure of sharing my final thoughts about Lorenzo Il Magnifico with the talented and loquacious Richard Ham, or Rotto as he is better known. I wondered if I still had more to say about this game a year later, or if I should move on to cultivate the new pastures. After many months of more plays. The answer is absolutely yes. I have not even begun to evangelize enough about this fantastic game that continues to captivate me, even after 30 plays. Lorenzo is published by Cranio Creations, distributed by Simon Games, and designed by Flaminia Brazzini, Virginio Gigli, and Simone Luciani. Luciani, I should mention, also has a hand in an astonishing number of my top 10 games, including Zolkin, Grand Austria Hotel, The Voyages of Marco Polo, and now Lorenzo il Magnifico. These games all overwhelm me with how perfectly they are constructed, how smoothly they play, and how vastly replayable they are with or without expansions. Artist team Clemens Franz and Andrea Kotnig join Andrea Reich of Istanbul fame, creating the classic Eurogame aesthetic while cleanly communicating an entire world of iconography with language-independent cards. I really appreciate the clean look of language-independent games, and I love that they do not favor one language over another. I think that this is a positive way we can make games more accessible to everyone. Well, everyone that is except folks that struggle with iconography. If this is you, this might be a game to steer away from. Lorenzo has played over six rounds, which is nicely divided into three eras with two rounds of play in each era. The goal, as a Florentine noble, is to acquire prestige for your family in the form of victory points, which can be scored in-game as well as at the end of the game. Over the course of the base game, you will see every card each game. Where each card is placed in their respective towers creates variability augmented by the round's dice rolls. Anchoring Lorenzo are the towers where you acquire these cards. Green territories, yellow buildings, blue characters, and purple ventures. Your player board has a section for each color of cards, and you can only acquire a max of 6 cards of each type in each game. Each card has unique cost and requirement, each tower holds 4 cards each round, and the cost of acquisition will be even higher if another player has already visited the same tower that round. Each person has 4 family members to place, as you would workers in a worker placement game, each round. Three are represented by a dice color, black, orange, and white, and the fourth is a 'er ne'er-do-well, who is always worth zero. Each round, the three dice will be rolled, setting the value of the workers for the round for everyone. Cards in a tower each have a unique dice value requirement, some high, some low. This adds variability as those dice rolls will determine what cards are accessible to purchase. Well, sort of. I say sort of, because every action can be mitigated in a variety of ways, and some spaces only require a single dice pip to place the worker. Servants can be played with workers to increase the level of the action space available to the worker, and yes... If your 'er ne'er-do-well is to do anything, they have to bring at least one servant along. Many of the cards you acquire over the course of the game will also give you special abilities that will let you break all of these placement rules. In addition to the towers, you may also place family members to gain money, military, servants, to improve your turn order, or to run your yellow or green card's abilities. At the end of every even round, if you didn't gain significant influence with the church, you risk getting excommunicated for that era excommunication results in a specific liability for the remainder of the game, or during endgame scoring for a third round excommunication. Once you understand the base game, you should definitely add in the leader cards that are drafted at the beginning of the game. Each leader has a cost, which needs to be acquired but not spent, to place the leader, and an amazing ability that will drive your game in a specific direction. These leaders can also be discarded for a small amount of income at any time, which can sometimes be the tiny push you need to accomplish great things which brings us to the core of what is delightful about Lorenzo Il Magnifico. Every opportunity in the game represents a path to victory if only you can navigate this decision space effectively. Can you find synergy in the leader draft so that your leaders have costs in common? Do you focus on yellow or green cards so that each round you are harvesting the abilities of your cards of that color? Did you save enough money so that you can hire that blue character that lets you immediately pick a second card? And do you have the resources to purchase that second card? Did you end up last player again? And is everyone else going to claim all the good stuff before your next turn? Can you afford to get excommunicated, or do you need to find some last minute influence with the church? The beauty of Lorenzo is the fact that you can sink into a flow state very easy in this game. Each turn is fairly short, just place a worker, but the ramifications of that choice may reverberate through the entirety of the game. You come away from each game feeling the choices you made matter and they do. As you can tell from my glowing praise, Lorenzo Il Magnifico is, in my humble opinion, a masterpiece of Eurogame design, and I hope you enjoy playing it as much as I do. If you would like to hear more from me, please follow me at Kybrarian on Twitter, or find me as Cat Library on BGG.
4: Hello, it's Lindsay here. And on this episode, I'm going to be discussing Arkham Royale The Witch Cult Murders. It's a hand management and set collection card game designed and illustrated by Eve Torigny and published by Ludanova. It's a solitaire game with low complexity, with an estimated 30 minute duration depending on how bad you are at it. So for me, it's over pretty quickly. So, solitaire. For around a year now, I've been playing more games solo. On my own, at my own pace, uninterrupted for the most part, solo experiences. And I've had a rather marvellous time. I do like playing games with other people. I like experiences and interactions but I've accepted my fate that for now solo short duration games provide a little escape and still give me a chance to game and it's working out pretty well. I saw Arcanoir on the Essen 2017 list and it got my attention because of the title. I'm into Lovecraftian mythos and have enjoyed several novellas and short stories, and I have some affinity with the surrounding lore and enjoy audiobooks and movie adaptions. I'm definitely not comfortable with some of the writer's own beliefs, and I think Mike had a point recently on Twitter when he mentioned that after a discussion with Calvin of Ding and Dent, the game should come with a disclaimer in the rule book to address, like, enjoy the lore but don't be racist and as Halvin said, disavowing Lovecraft's beliefs. There was some discussion of games within Lovecraft's setting that actually bring attention to the matter. So I think it's certainly a step forward. And although Arkham Noir doesn't address this, there are people of colour in the game, where they perhaps might not have been in the novels. I have really enjoyed some stories, and have a few favourites, one of which is Dreams in the Witch House which this game is based on along with the thing on the doorstep and the unnameable. It also has a very pulp noir art style and one of the first images I saw of the game was of a whole bunch of cards on a table. In Arcanoir, Noir you are solving cases and there's no characterisation or narrative you are playing with the icons on the cards. You must complete a case by playing the first lead cards from the leads row into your hand managing your hand by deciding which cards to place on your investigation row. The cards you lay have to match the symbol of the previously played card and you need a set of different types and the puzzle icon to complete and score a case you have sanity and time checks throughout the game as a result of certain cards played and if you spend too much of either you will lose the game you need five completed cases to win i think what makes this such a decent solo game is it's very challenging i've had no victory yet which i never see as a bad thing at least not for the first few times I especially like solo games which emulate that video game experience like oh just one more time and you want to carry on and on with it which is the puzzling thing about the certain stigma that comes with solo gaming like a person can play a video game for six hours straight and there's nothing wrong with that you play a solo game for a long period of time and then you reduce this sort of quasimodo type figure hiding the shadows content in a life of solitude which I actually think is kind of weird because it's no different from any other activity you do alone but I also find it funny because actually maybe I'm a bit like that and maybe it's because board games are thought of as this interactive group experience. And I also know not everybody thinks this of solo gamers, and my tongue is firmly in cheek. So I like when solo games have that appeal of must play again rather than oh, I did this thing for a while and then it was over. It's the limited cards in your hand that bring the challenge and the limited amount of lead cards available, and playing carefully enough so you're not maxing out on time and sanity. It's not beyond the realms of possibility to win, but it's going to take a lot more trial than ever to get there for me. I also like the fact that. It doesn't have any variations it just is quite difficult and there you have it but the game itself hasn't got a great amount of complexity either i play this with candles lit and some atmospheric music and it really added to the experience i think the artwork lends itself to the theme and the atmosphere it's like monochromatic etchings on sepia print which gives the appearance of an eight millimeter movie i'm not sure that was intentional but it's definitely something i got the feeling of Eve also illustrates prints of Sound Etsy shop as well as illustrating for books and the other two games in the series were actually only available to purchase through Etsy and are now very sadly sold out which is a shame because I really want to play The King in Yellow. Again it's a theme and story I'd love to see in the card game format and it's based on the stories of Robert W Chambers and I very much hope this becomes widely available for purchase in the future. Eve also created a puzzle book called rooms which i'm really interested in i like the way he's executed this series it's got kind of air of mystery about it much like the subject matter and so it's pretty cool but you know also want to play the games as well lastly i'm really glad this is a good lovecraftian game there's been extreme bloat in this genre and a lot of that is style over substance um, masking a fairly dull game with cool miniatures and and the games don't really deviate from being a deck builder i mean if anyone has any recommendations then please send them my way but i'm recently seeing more games using this theme, but keeping it small scale pared down and using different mechanics rather than mini movie and deck building and fighting i think harknoy is a great example of this it's subtle it's sort of like halfway through you say oh okay that's actually really smart because you're really torn as to what to do next just through little aspects of the gameplay coming together and it's highly intense you're on hooks, thinking oh no the next card means it's over i'm going to go insane just one more card i can do this many times i've said yes when playing so it really delivers on the suspense the only downside i guess would be that it's a card laden table hog and you have quite a few icons to remember but neither of those things have put me off playing the game if you want to see and hear more from me you can visit my website and blog at shinyhappymaples.co.com. watch me on youtube with shiny happy visit my instagram shiny happy and follow me on twitter capital s capital h capital m meeples capital c co and bye for now
3: thank you for listening to the five by if you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5BuyGames, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5BuyGames, or join our BGG Guild, number 2810. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or follow all the links on 5BuyGames.com.
0: The 5 By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.